Particularly interested in reading Subcomandante Marcos' poetry because apparently he's one of the greatest Latin American writers, and I had no idea. All right, I didn't know that at all. Yeah, apparently he's a he he did a PhD in like fucking English literature or uh, Spanish literature and like fucking philosophy. So yeah, well, and I guess that's that's why they're the coolest, yeah, because they'll they'll do poetry and then shoot you in the head. Hello and welcome to the Anime Podcast. Uh, this is season three, where we're taking a look at armed groups throughout the world. Uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And today we're doing one of the good guys. We're doing the Zapatistas, or the EZLN. If you don't know too much about them, clearly not born in the 90s, they were the big thing of the left come their insurgency in 1994. And in the early noughties with bands like Rage Against the Machine really pushed them uh, into the mainstream for a lot of people. And most of the comedy gigs that I did for the left in the early, well, the late noughties, by the time that I was doing comedy, they were usually for Easy Line fundraisers. So they, they did do quite a lot to sort of bring communities around the world together. Uh, we're going to really dig into them, tell you you know, why they work, uh, how they work, what's good about them, what's bad about them. I am your host today, James, and I'm joined as ever by my co-host, Alex. How are you getting on? Uh, I'm fine. Slightly warm, as, you know, regular listeners will no doubt know. I live in a boat, which is effectively an oven during the summer, as it's, well, it's just a big pile of metal. Uh, so if it's cold outside, I'm fucking freezing. And if it's really warm, I'm really, really warm. So, other than that, I'm doing well. Cool. I'm very excited to be talking about the Zapatistas today. They're a group that's close to my heart. Uh, one of the, I mean, we won't really get into this in the in the podcast, but the Zapatistas are sort of one of those things where my life could have taken a different turn because in 2014, when, so we, me and Alex were living in Edinburgh and then he decided to move to Canada for various reasons. And I decided that I wasn't too interested in living in Scotland for too much longer and decided that the best thing to do was go join the Zapatistas through the connections that we had through various anarchist organizations. And there was a couple of us that were organizing and talking to them and getting ready. Uh, not too much, but you know, we're starting to do the, the basic Spanish lessons and we're getting it sorted where we're going to stay. And there was a, a shooting, uh, some violence flared up, and they basically told us that it was it was not safe. Uh, so I didn't go over, and then the moment sort of passed, and I've never been to Mexico or visited them. Uh, and it's it's much much better. And you know, I moved to Ireland and now I'm having a baby, so it's very unlikely that I'll ever live out my dreams of being a, a good looking Zapatista in the Chiapas region running guns for them or whatever um you're definitely not going to be able to, to do it with a rad lib baby yeah <laughs> Look, i'm just i'm sorry but subcommandante marcos is not nearly woke enough <laughs> not by the time it's three yeah the pc baby would be the the pc babies from south park yeah exactly yeah. that's that's what you're gonna have you're on pc babies 
So where what's your where's your interest come from, Alex, when it comes to the EZLN? Um, well, I remember living in Edinburgh, and I can't remember the name. Of, it was Ace, wasn't it? Yeah. And I remember at Ace had tons of kind of EZLN kind of product like products from people working in, in in the kind of the the autonomous communities. I remember going to a documentary showing in I think it was probably 2011, but or even 2010. And there was a documentary, it was about an hour and a half long, about the struggle. And I was amazed that I had so little had come down, so little information had been, was available publicly about it. You kind of had to go to these little niche areas by 2010, 2011, uh, which is surprising because they were all over the news in 1994, 95, 96, obviously, uh, given the circumstances. And after that, uh, obviously, everyone's a fan of Rage Against the Machine, and suddenly some of the lyrics made a lot more sense. Yeah, and I even bought uh, I bought a lot of their stuff at, actually at the time because a you know I wanted to look cool, which I never managed to do, but I made a, a piss poor attempt at looking cool. And after that, I was very interested in them because of how they were like how was it that they were able to, you know, relatively speaking, be successful in 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 forming autonomous communities where so many others were not. So yeah, kind of different reasons i've been i was i i am and was interested in um actually talking about ace and um zapatista stuff i bought a couple of t-shirts from there and one of them was mislabeled as large when it was actually extra small so i had this t-shirt of subcabante marcos that was an extra small which basically if i put it all i would be able to put it on but it was like a child's t-shirt and so it would it wouldn't even cover my belly button and I would occasionally get drunk and stick that on and run around the flat like an idiot. So, oh yeah, now I do remember that. Now you say that, like, <laughs> I probably just blacked it out of my memory because it didn't. Uh, well, I won't go into James's belly button, but there's there's some strange things going on there. He may or may not have been, uh, you know, gestated in the tank, a back to tank for those Star Wars fans. Um, anyway, should we get along with it? Get on. Yeah, we'll get into it. So, so let's let's start at the very very beginning. But I'll do this and make because I can make it brief. Unlike Alex, the historian, that will contextualize five hundred years of history. Um, Thank you. So the the Zapatistas, who are they? They are in the Chiapas region of Mexico or Mexico, if you want to be accurate, but also uh, sound weird while you're talking English. They are autonomously organized group. They they came to fruition in 1994, but they'd actually been started a good 10 years before that. They are mostly indigenous populations. So they're, there's lots of different terms you could tell that you say they're Native Americans or Indians or um, Mayans. Or... Amerindian, I've heard that. Amerindian. Yeah. But yeah, they were, they're basically, you know, Mexico, it's easy to forget, especially since, you know, in Ireland and the UK, we don't deal with Mexico very often. It's easy to forget that that's actually a col like a colonial country as well, where obviously the Spanish invaded Mexico and took it over and subjugated the indigenous population, which is most of what uh, is the, the, the cultural and ethnic makeup of the Zapatistas are. There are a couple of what you would call mestizos who are of Spanish descent, but for what you know, they're either integrate, integrated into the society or body body bar. 
you don't want to get too into it, but there's there's five you know uh, indigenous groups that are part of the Zapatistas, and as far as they see it, they're fighting against 500 years of colonial oppression, which is the the Mexican government is very much part of. If you know anything about Mexican politics over the last 120 years, you would you know you would definitely believe that to be true. So where do they take their name from? Let's get into that. So, Alex, take us through a little bit of Zapata and the Mexican Revolution. It's funny that you um, you you began by taking what I wanted to be my question because I don't know a huge amount about the Mexican Revolution, which is why I wanted you to talk about it. All right. I mean, I could really get into the Mexican Revolution for don't. give us a good yeah, listen. Exactly. So it's the the start of the Mexican Revolution is far far too complicated. There's lots of um, factors playing in. But it's mostly to do with land reforms and, you know, American imperialism and uh, ideas coming out of Europe, like Marxism and anarchy, anarchism from Buchanan and things like that start seeding in. And yeah, it's a, it's a chance for, as a lot of peasants see, is their way to overthrow the, the order that exists. And in the south, you have the indigenous Zapata, uh, who is basically... Between him and Pancho Villa, two of the, the coolest revolutionaries that ever existed. And Zapata was in the south where Chiapas is, which uh, historically has more of an indigenous population for reasons I'm not actually 100% sure on. I think it's just harder for, um, it's more, you know, forested, et cetera, et cetera. So it's harder. Alex, have you got a reason for that? Uh, yeah, well, you kind of hit the nail on the head there that the South was just more underdeveloped. Uh, the North was basically as an area around Mexico City, which used to be Tenochtitlan. I think that's how you pronounce it, which is the old Aztec capital. Uh, it's just was a more developed area and was more developed under Spanish um, colonial rule. I just wanted to say something really, really briefly, which is, and I don't, and this is going to be, believe it or not, brief, brief even for you, which is the thing that the Spanish introduced and has been, was maintained until the Spanish Revolution and even until the present day was a kind of a form of capitalism without going into a huge explanation, you know, mercantile capitalism or even whatever. Uh, the idea that the land being privatized, that the native people were less than human. There was a caste system throughout Spanish rule, throughout the 19th century, and even up until the 1970s in the Chiapas, uh, Amerindians, basically the native people, weren't allowed to walk on the sidewalks and the footpaths in some of the main towns in the Chiapas. So this was something that as goes does, in, feet, in fact, go all the way back 500 years. It's not like um, hyperbole. Yeah, it's really... It's really strange. I, well, I find it strange, or it did anyway, and it still sort of blows my mind now to just think about how Mexico's politics is so like cut up and is about racial politics, and it, you don't really think about it because it's just something that's not really talked about much outside of you know the people about these situations. So, but in in many ways, Mexico is the the you know the state that has existed for. You know, since the, the end of the, the Mexican Revolution in various forms or another, is the, the sort of forerunner of neoliberal capitalism. It's always done it, but on steroids. So, you know, when it came to the, the 80s and the 90s, they really ran with those neoliberal ideas because they'd already kind of been doing them anyway, to the extent where they sort of make like autonomous zones for companies rather than people. 
which we'll be getting into now, actually. So, yeah, the, the basic, they take the name from Zapata, who was uh, a Mexican revolutionary from the south who was indigenous to that area and uh, kicked a whole bunch of arse. So, uh, Alex, let's go into NAFTA then. What really kicked that into place and what did the Zapatistas have? Where was their big problems with that? So the North American Free Trade Agreement, otherwise known as NAFTA, was something that was actually heavily a project of liberal hero and also rapist uh, Bill Clinton, you know, spoilers, a uh, well-known friend of Jeffrey Epstein. Amongst the many things that he did that were horrific was this agreement, which didn't even benefit the, the working class of America. This is the, the bizarre thing about it. It kind of gutted a lot of industrial centers in the Northeast of the United States because most of those companies realized now that there was no trade barriers, they could move their production to Mexico. Very rarely did they move to Canada, which was also part of the and uh, part of NAFTA. But a lot of the productions moved down to where they could basically pay their workers next to nothing and simultaneously flood the Mexican market with cheap goods. This is pretty much similar to what happened with the, the British Empire, flooding India, flooding Ireland, flooding all its empire with goods that you just couldn't compete with. And the reason why the Zapatistas, who kind of by the time this is being negotiated, understood that they're not only with their uh, coffee beans, which they kind of grew and sold, be undermined, but beyond that, that the Mexican government, as part of the negotiations, had agreed to strip uh, the constitution of amendment that actually uh, was there to redistribute land to the poor. It was delib deliberately put there in the revolution in 1917, and it was removed just, I think, 1992 uh, or 1993 thereabouts. The point is, they saw this for what it was and what it's actually become, which is a, a kind of a disaster for poor people, both in America and in Mexico. And they were the only group that really, that, that early on, was like, nope, we're going to stand and we're gonna, not going to let this happen, at the very least, in this part of Chiapas. Though, obviously, they wanted it to be a Mexican-wide revolution. As it turned out, it would be an indigenous revolution in these in this particular area of the south of, of Mexico. So what happens is on New Year's Day of 1994 is the, the Zapatistas basically invade a town uh, with a variety of weapons, um, some of them actually from the Mexican Revolution, where, you know, they're sort of using guns that were basically uh, from World War One, but are still functioning. They had AK-47s, which, you know, I think every group that we talk about has an AK-47 at some point. They were the most versatile weapons in the world. But they also were armed with sticks and cardboard cutouts and things like that to make it look like weapons. And their, their main guy, who is not the leader, but is sort of the, the spokesperson for the Zapatistas, is sort of the face, even though he's always wearing a, a balaclava, does a very rousing speech in Spanish to the population, but uh, none of the peasants there actually spoke Spanish, so it was kind of fell on deaf ears. But what they were very good at uh, was getting the message out into the the wilder world, and so it really becomes a a a rallying call, and they do very smartly maneuver themselves within the press of Mexico and, you know, of places like the, the BBC and things like that, um, in knowing where to push their buttons. It's very calculated and very smart. 
Just that it wasn't just the one town, there was many towns basically bordering on the Laconda forest kind of mountain area in the southeast. So they were kind of heavily based in the jungles up in the mountains. They come down, which is primarily um, Amerindian kind of land, and they come down to the towns. I think there's about eight towns. I could be wrong about that. And they declare this war against the Mexican government, the war against neoliberalism. And they, some areas anyway, began kind of going after kind of Mexican army zones or whatever, but it doesn't really last very long before the Mexican government. I mean, by not, not very long, I mean 24 hours before the Mexican army floods into the area. So let's think of it like this. If we and you and I mean, how many, I don't think there's actually any solid number on how many Zapatistas that there were that tried to take over these two. 3,000. So um, if me and you and 3,000 of our listeners uh, try to take over a town like um, Dingle or you know, somewhere in the Western Hills or something like that, we'd obviously wouldn't last long against an army for any length of time. So how did the, the Zapatistas maneuver themselves to be able to withstand the might of a government? Um, kind of some of the things you've already mentioned. I mean, the, the Mexican government sent in about 17,000 troops. And I mean, modern trained troops with U.S. materiel, including tanks and kind of um, fighters. I think I've seen some footage of fighter jets flying over the jungles as the Zapatistas filmed them. What they did is they retreated into the, the jungle, which is the most obvious thing to do. It was at least cover there. And they fell back on the support that they had, which was the population of that region. And really, in the end, the two things that saved them wasn't guerrilla war or any type of asymmetrical warfare and like that it was that they were able to publicize their message get the message out to people in the cities in mexico there was a march in mexico city uh, a couple of weeks, days after the fighting began of a hundred thousand people protesting the government there was signs saying we're all marcos uh, so again he was able he was a very charismatic spokesman he was able to get his message across and kind of make a weird kind of connection with a, a global audience, which has been very, very important. But secondly, and most importantly for their immediate survival, they were able to hide and be protected by the population in those areas. Simply put, if they didn't have the support of majority of the population in that area, they wouldn't have survived. It was just, I mean, and even then, uh, they were going to were, were going to be wiped out if it hadn't been for the fact that the government had to backtrack within, I think, 12 days. Pretty quickly, the government was terrified of the public response in the rest of Mexico. So this is a lesson to anyone who wants to learn from kind of revolution movements. You need what the Zapatistas did was very, very smart, very, very smart, because it was a combination of having local support and kind of local network and being able to get your message across and make it popular amongst people who otherwise uh, would know about your struggle. So that was a re that's really why they survived and still do survive. Yeah, I think it is also worth pointing out that the fact that they are armed as well does go to some way to explain how they've been able to, to last this long. Because, you know, it's sort of a, a Cold War situation where they don't have too many battles, if, you know, any all that often, apart from maybe with some of the, the drug trafficking organizations that are around in that area and, you know, some skirmishes here and there. But you still you still have to make people think twice about you know what they're going to do if say the irish government decided tomorrow that you know people before profit was going to go 
and they were going to arrest all of them, it would be a lot harder to do it if they were all armed. Not that I'm saying that that's what people would perform what would do, but you would definitely give the government, you know, more cause to think about it because, you know, dead Garda on the TV doesn't look good, no matter which way you play it. And I think, you know, there's loads and loads of factors to, to how the Zapatista was, you know, keep on going as they are. And some of it is to do with the unique nature of Mexico and how they've been neoliberal for so long that they never really developed that area to be able to go into it, to dominate it that well. So they're already on and off it there because they can basically say, right, we'll give it up. We'll normally hold it, but we'll give it up because we're not getting anything from it anyway. It doesn't you know, give us much revenue in terms of money from taxes or, you know, holding it doesn't, um, you know, give us a, a place in the world stage. There's no gold or silver there to to mine. You know, there's just, uh, as they would say, peasants and coffee and corn. So what's it to us, you know, to lose that ground? And, and most importantly, they were able to weaponize a narrative about colonization and about the suffering of the poor Amerindians in that area. And they were able to broadcast that. Again, for anyone who doesn't know, they wouldn't have survived. I mean, the Mexican army has already proven itself to be unbelievably ruthless when it comes to the, to the population in the area. And they would have done a lot more if it had been politically acceptable for them to do it. Again, if they had not been able to get their message out, if they didn't have support in that area, but even if they'd had support and they hadn't been able to get their message out, the and they'd just been there'd been radio silence in the area, they would have been crushed. I mean, they would have killed huge amounts of people. Because as it is, just in the kind of I think it was a 12 days, about 300 people were killed. Many of them Zapatistas caught, their hands tied behind their back with plastic stri- uh, plastic ties and shot in the back of the head. Uh, many of them civilians. I mean, the, the, the Mexican army is not against killing civilians, certainly not against killing Zapatistas at surrender. Yeah, and I definitely have heard that before in terms of that they, I mean, they were still pretty brutal, but they weren't as brutal as they would have been because they knew that they were being watched. And now I think you would probably be able to get away with a lot more than you could have done in you know the mid-90s in terms of things like that. So anyway, the, they're able to hold, uh, what is it, is it 40? 30 autonomous communities, which are now organized into five, basically, municipal districts that are run autonomously. Yeah. So do you want to go into their, their structure a little bit more then? Yeah, um, just briefly, the, there was a kind of peace treaty of sorts, though it's been multiple times broken by the Mexican government called the San Andreas Accords which in, on paper anyway, which the, American, the Mexican government agreed to, allowed them to organize their own communities, uh, at least on paper. Again, they've broken it many, many times since. And they, each government seems to have a different view. But what has come into being, certainly since 2003, is what I just said there. There are 30 municipal, pardon me, 30 municipal kind of nodes of government. Below that, there are local villages. Each local village has its own representatives and its own self-government. They send representatives to municipal government who represent numerous villages. And in turn, uh, it goes all the way up until these like five, what are called caracols, I think. I, again, for people who speak Spanish, I'm butchering that, I'm sure. But again, it's just a, a way of them kind of furthering the idea of bottom up government. So this is like classic libertarian socialism, classic anarchism, 
power rests at the bottom. Uh, even, you know, the leaders of the Zapatistas, Marcos being most famous, but all of them have said they basically do what they're told by the democratic representatives of the people. They believe that uh, democracy means something you do every day. You have to be involved. It's not something you get to do once every four years and you get to choose between um, a candidate that's picked you by the leash. Um, you can't hold an office, any office from bottom up uh, for more than two weeks, uh, which means the power is never in one group of people's hands. The armed kind of groups who depends on what how many of them they are. There's some people say there's up to 40,000, others closer to 8,000. They uh, are obviously part of the governing of these groups, but they are not uh, people who sit relentlessly in power. They're there to defend the communities. They're not there to rule them. And that's remarkable. I, everything I've seen and read seems to suggest they actually abide by their ideology. They haven't seized power. And Marcos seems to want to retire and has retired the character of Marcos, Subcomante Marcos. He is, after all, 64 years old now, so it's not likely that he's going to do that forever. But yeah, I mean, it's 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 for without fanboying out, without you know, without shipping or not shipping, simping. Sorry, without simping for the Zapatistas. I mean, there's not a lot of bad things I can say about them, you know. Yeah, exactly. And it's you know, again, it's important to note. I think that all these decisions are made and then filtered down to the the community that speak five or six different languages, and it's all translated to them that they you know so everyone can understand what's happening and be participatory in the building of their communities and it really just is sort of your your blueprint i think for <laughs> like it's the proof in the pudding of like you know what as anarchists we say we're looking for and you know maybe there'd be problems doing it on a much much bigger scale not that you know we think that's going to be too much of a problem because probably you know over the next 30 40 years large-scale governments could be well on their way out when it comes to climate chaos etc uh most of what we were talking about in season two but uh when it comes to that many people that they have in the area that they have it's a very good system it's direct democracy it should be said there's the, the the last time the figure I read for how many people are in the area roughly sixty thousand families, which is a lot of people. We're talking you know multiply that by five, you know or you know three, whatever is the appropriate number. It's it's certainly large. It's very very large. Um, and it just uh, last year added eleven new districts to the EZLN, and it seems at the moment anyway, like you said, that as long as the Mexican government are of the view that they're not going to move much beyond these areas, which they think are as, as unproductive, and as long as there's so much sympathy for them, it seems that, the, as you said, it's kind of a cold war that the Mexican government doesn't want to fight. And again, that will say something for any group or any person who is ever in this position who wants to kind of, kind of carve out a territory that you kind of have to have a degree of luck um i think oh yeah 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 for sure i mean like mexico is very very complicated and there's lots of things going on there and you know what the the ezln pretty much say is what works for us is not going to work for everyone else and i think that's such a an important part of their their ideological framework in the way that they you know they talk to 
other communities around the world is the they've got that sort of like look if you want to come over and you know hang out and you know spend time with the family and if you want to show up and listen as you know and learn from us that's great um but we're also going to point out you know every situation is not it's not going to play it the same way like first of all you know as i was saying earlier like mexico has never really developed itself in the way that the say like you know the united states of where everything's linked up really well in terms of like motorways and stuff and you know most places have been deforested and there's been like at some point there was a government that was not really but nominally was you know working for the people where you've never had that in mexico it's never been like that there's never been a mexican government that has really come in and you know tr tried to link things up probably because it's always been an uh you know a colonial outpost of america from very early on so that's yeah. your first thing but well, also just one yeah. other thing i wanted to mention that in it well, as briefly as i can mexico also had two uh, odd well one's actually disadvantaged but was an advantage to creating a population that were willing to hear this message one is liberation theology with the catholic church in that particular area was actually a force mostly for good and is respected for the most part by the, the Amerindians because they actually try to protect them against the violence of the state, which is unusual for the Catholic Church. And secondly, there's enormous poverty there. There's, I mean, huge poverty, like 90% of the population are either have no income at all or are below the breadline or below any type of minimum wage that might exist in Mexico, not the one that does exist. You know, there's barely any drinking water. The drinking water that does exist is, is often polluted or not uh, fit for consumption. I mean, we're talking about gr you know grinding levels of poverty that for the most part don't exist in Europe anymore. But I mean, some places they do, but I mean, they're not as, as bad as, as it is there. So that odd combination of the reality of capitalism and a liberation theology from the priesthood. I think that we should mention that that was a big part of the background of a lot of normal people's lives. Um, yeah, I agree with those points. But also, um, you know, the 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 drug organizations that exist in Mexico as well um, are a huge, huge systemic problem that you know have this very complicated way that they play within. Mexican politics, because on one hand, they are <laughs> like in government in some ways, on other hands, they're always, you know, against it, they're outside of the law, but they're, you know, they're fucking way better armed than the, the Zapatistas, and they're really fucking brutal, and, you know, they will just assassinate people in government, and, you know, that's, Again, it's complicated because in some ways they're sort of funded, you know, these these drug trafficking organizations are partly funded by American intervention and they definitely get their weapons from America in a, a variety of ways. And some of them is just people going up north and getting the weapons and bringing them down. And some of it is the fact that these organizations were effectively armed by the CIA for a variety of reasons. And that's a thorn in the side of the America, uh, the Mexican government that is, you know, is a much more pressing issue for them than, you know, some guys down in, you know, the very south of the country that, you know, doesn't have a huge amount of tourists that visit, you know? 
when you have Marcos like writing poetry and philosophically, you know, having interviews with fucking Zach de la Roca, I think in the long term, that's not that big a threat. You know, again, especially because it's not in the area that is is known for, you know, huge agricultural production. The actual districts themselves are, are surrounded by a Mexican army encampments. So if they, again, there must be an element of if they ever became a real problem to us, if there was actually, a, I think once they realized that the, the revolution wasn't going to spread beyond that area, I think they were more interested in just kind of ignoring them slash using paramilitary groups to undermine them. And it should be said, there was about six paramilitary groups created by the Mexicans, special uh, forces to try and undermine Zapatistas by going into villages, pointing guns at people and saying, either you join our group or we're going to kill everyone in this village. And in one village of Actiel, I think that's how you pronounce it, uh, they killed 45 people who resisted. And they these were all people who were hiding in a church. They butchered them all. And again, that information got out and the world learned about that. The, the, the ability for the Zapatistas to publicize what the Mexican government has done uh, throughout Mexico and certainly throughout the world has been probably one of the greatest strengths and i don't want to hit home on it too much but i think there's a lot of groups that do not communicate their message well at all and i think marcos his ability to communicate for the zapatistas has been very important in that particular strength should we should we talk about him a bit because the idea of having a leader or having some type of spokesman whatever you want to call it is sometimes used by you know wreck the heads uh <laughs> melts as you'd say amongst the anarchist community as a reason why the Zapatistas are in, are not the, the pure thing. And we often talk about this, that, you know, you've taught, talked about the idea of having some type of structure in between where you are, which is Mexico, neoliberal Mexico, and where the the um, the communities are, are now. Would, would you think that people like Marcos and the Zapatista army, are they a useful way to have some type of I wouldn't say top down, but but certainly much more hierarchical structure uh, achieve that. Yeah, it gives a sense of continuity for one. I think that goes a long way to help, especially when it is, you know, like maybe too much is put onto him as is, you know, it's his brainchild and stuff. But he was there. I think when it started with six people, and it was like you know three indigenous people and three mestizos. Uh, and then by nineteen ninety four, I think out of the, you know, the the big six that was there, he was the only mestizos there. I think it's the fact that he speaks Spanish as well goes a long way to helping him as a as a spokesperson in in that area. I'm not really sure how many of them speak Spanish per head of population, but yeah, as I was saying, in like nineteen ninety four, there was like whole towns that didn't speak it. It's just like if it works, you know, you don't you don't break it. And I think the other they're very disciplined as a group as well. And I think that's really, really played to their strengths. And I'm not 100 percent sure how they do that. But I think, for example, they've never really fallen into the into the game of parliamentary politics. They have there's people that they've said that they tacitly support who've stood for you know, the, the president, I think, um, in 2017 or something like that, there was a, a female indigenous person that was running. And they didn't say, like, oh, yeah, we support her. But it was just one of those, like, well, like, this is not probably going to work out, but 
you know, this person is indigenous, if they can raise a little bit of awareness, there's no harm in it. And what they don't do is they don't get bogged down in like sort of inter like indigenous issues. So if there's a, you know, like if there's another place that is not following them, they don't denounce them. They're just like, okay, you do you. If that's the way you want to play it, you go for it. We're not going to push it on you. We're not going to, you know, badmouth you in this way. And it's just such a, you know, and I don't know where that comes from. I don't know if it comes from uh, Marcos or something inherent within them, but it's just really, you know, like amazing to see. It's so disciplined. It's so tight that it really just like a lot of the, the worst aspects of the left really just are not there at all you know their ability to kind of organize to resist really what a quite effective uh, paramilitary kind of onslaught because again the, the the leader of the special forces in the area in the 1990s was had a fucking phd in counterterrorism from like fucking langley i mean he knew his stuff and it just didn't work because they were a they knew what was going on because the population were supportive of them. B, they were able to publicize what was going on, which made the Mexican government and the local administrators, you know, look horrific, which they yeah, every right to look horrific because they were behind this, these murders. Um, and again, their ability to kind of counter that, again, most of the time not militarily, because as we said in the beginning, they're just not particularly well armed. They are armed and they have said, you know. You know, we're not we're not going to use our weapons, but, you know, if, if we are going to keep them because we need them for defense and at least as a deterrent. But, you know, if the Mexican army, army wanted to tomorrow, militarily speaking, they could, of course, go into the areas and probably kill a lot of people. There was I think it was in 95 there was a military offensive and they were surrounded Marcos and the kind of actual the armed wing. And again, by publicizing what was going on. They were able to force the government to backtrack. So um, it's and you couldn't really do that again. You, you kind of have to have some degree, at the very least, of temporary hierarchical control for that. Again, we're not talking about like a society which is perpetually like that. I think anarchists find it really, really hard to accept that idea that in, in situations like a war, certainly you know, you have to try and bend your principles to just fucking survive. And the ability to do that, the ability to understand that it was a it's a project that's going to take a while. I mean, I think we 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 did three episodes about the Spanish Revolution last season. If if more of that type of mentality could have been there, um, and less kind of utopian thinking, a lot more practical thinking, I, I think, and I think that comes back to the the Amerindian kind of the majority of the Zapatistas is being kind of indigenous. You know, they 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 they're they're you know, demands in the here and now are not revolutionary. They're just let leave me alone. You know, yeah, there is there is a degree of practicality to that, which I think aids them enormously. So yeah, th like the ability to say, well, you know, we're going to cede some power in the here and now to deal with a military threat, but we're building the society we want just slower than the average seventeen-year-old with uh, Doc Martens would want. Yeah, exactly. And I think there was, you know, it shows you say. You know, ten minute, uh, ten minutes, ten years from its inception to, you know, like it's the way that it hits the world stage in nineteen ninety four. It really just shows you that sort of meticulous nature that the the group have, and I think it is just, you know, a case of like 
don't go before you're ready. Just think about it. Like, you kind of feel like they were just sitting, like, cross-legged in the lotus position, just, you know, doing a sort of Sherlock Holmes mind game thing of just like, all right, well, if this happens, like, this is what we're going to do. And if that happens, we'll do that. And, like, just really just planning it properly. And, you know, I think where basically, you know, every group that we talk about where they went wrong was you know, for the for the groups that we're in favor of but have issues with. Where it goes wrong is they hadn't planned for things, you know, the Black Panthers didn't plan for what was going to happen when they were infiltrated by, you know, the FBI. The, you know, the IRA didn't plan for much in the future. <laughs> it didn't really have like a 20 year plan. It was always just like, you know, what's happening next week, what's happening the week after that. And the Zapatistas really have this coherent, like, sort of structure that they hang from. And it's so fucking rare for anarchists. It's unbelievable. It's like they're the real exception to the world, which I guess leads us on to our, our last question then, which is, it's sort of, um, I get discussed now more than I think it did um, 10, 15 years ago to varying degrees, especially, I think, because of the proliferation of. Um, the internet and how much you know how much easier it is to get access to it and indigenous groups have really taken to you know going on twitter and lots of them admit you know all around the world uh, but especially in the americas that you know like there's a lots of indigenous groups that basically use anarchist principles and frameworks um or we would say that they're anarchist anyway and that's they all give their you know top their hats off to the the zapatistas but are the zapatistas anarchists i don't think it matters i think you know not to be flippant but if it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck i don't particularly care what other people call it i know what it is and it's a society that organizes as much as they can by bottom-up political methods it's it's a society that allows people of of poverty, whether an Amerindian or a mestizo dignity, allows organizes workplaces cooperatively. Has a women's revolutionary council. It or it, it its big thing is education. Has schools throughout the area. I mean, I don't particularly care if they call themselves, you know, you know, fucking elephants on ecstasy. They can call themselves whatever they like. I don't care. I I care that you know what they actually do, and I would define what they do as as close a living embodiment of anarchism as I know of. Um, it's certainly, there are not many other, uh, you know, existing or long existing anyway, examples to put your hat on. And I don't, you, you know, if you if they'd rather be called Zapatista or Zapatism or whatever you want to call it, or there's a million different names people call them. I, I agree with how they've, how they structured the society. I mean, quibbles aside, they're just quibbles. Like some people find the need to to go through everything with a fine tooth comb. I knew anarchists who were, you know, really pissy about Rojava because, you know, it wasn't exactly some utopian idea they had in their heads. But those people aren't serious people anyway. These are, you know, again, if you're having a problem with the Zapatistas, uh, you should not be in, you shouldn't be in the revolutionary politics game because if you're refusing to uh, engage with reality, if you want to live in a fantasy world where things have to be exactly what a Russian uh, anarchist from 1875 said, then, you know, fuck off. This is a, is a really good example and it's practical. 
and whatever they call themselves, I don't care. Yeah, that's a really good answer, actually. It's probably a little better than what I was going to go for, which is kind of to do with my understanding of of Mexican history, though. But, you know, the way that, say, the Mexican Revolution is, is discussed is very often focusing on the, you know, the colonial part of it. And largely, the indigenous groups weren't really you know, too heavily involved in the Mexican Revolution um, for various reasons, but mostly because they didn't have any skin in the game they were going to get, um, you know, like shagged either way. But I think there was a real sense in Mexico at one point anyway that it, you know, it didn't see itself as a colonial nation on the, you know, the other side of the world. It saw itself part of Europe in the same, in a way that, you know, America has never seen itself. And that might just be, you know, the books I read about the Mexican Revolution that is sort of paints it like that. But, you know, I think the ideas that, you know, Zapata took were from Europe because they all, you know, read Spanish and, the, you know, it, the way that um, that sort of, you know, the 1910s, the Edwardian era, the way that mass communication was really coming, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I think what they would say is, well, yeah, you're just putting a name on something that, we already had the idea for a couple hundred years before Buchanan was around or before Marx was around. So like, why would we be anarchists? Like this is the way that we were trying to live anyway. And I don't know how accurate that is, but you know, that's what they're saying. There is definitely, I think too much is made in, in some ways of this argument where it basically goes along the lines of that, you know, uh, Marxism and anarchism have this, inherent colonial ideology into them. I think what a lot of, you know, say indigenous or, um, you know, black radical thinkers are basically, what they kind of say is like, look, you know, they've got their problems. They kind of see it in this very European centric way. And it doesn't really fit for these communities. And I think some people react badly to that. And they're basically like, oh, well, you're, what, you're just trying to, you know, cancel Marx or something like that, where the sensible ones are like, no, it just, you know, this aspect doesn't work for it, so you need to alter it for this situation. And I think that's, you know, where we should be as theorists, basically, and as people that engage. Um, it's a situation-to-situation thing, and you can't get too bogged down in the, the terminology. Or I think it helps to a little extent. But it's not the be all and end all. And it's, you know, chasing a purist ideology is where you're going to land yourself into trouble. Where, you know, as, as I was saying earlier, Zapatista would be like, right, if you think that's the way that's good, you're going to get it done, well, you do that then. If it's the food, if you're going to set up a food bank, where we maybe would say that's not what we would do because we can access food a lot easier. We can actually just grow it because we've got land. But if it's, if that's what you want to do, you set up a radical food bank, go ahead. That'll work for you. I will back you up on that. And it's such a much more powerful and all-encompassing format. So, It also should be said that they've been able to roll with punches too, which is, again, they wanted a Mexican Mexico-wide revolution in 94. They didn't get it. They rolled with the punches. By the early 2000s, they were engaging with other groups, the left in, in, in broader Mexico. Uh, you know, they went on two tours of Mexico, all 31 states, 
trying to raise support for leftist causes. They've been able to get people in from the outside world. They, they've been they, they've been able to evolve with how the situation changed. And so many groups, just I'd say most groups don't do that. They're just too wedded to like a fixed ideology and a fixed way of doing things um, in a kind of almost cultish way. And I think, again, it, it, that is often Marxist groups, but it's not always Marxist groups. I mean, the Spanish Civil War, the anarchists were not able to evolve with the, the changing times. And I think that did play a role in why they kind of had lost ascendancy after 1937 in, in Spain. But the, the Zapatistas have been able to change uh, because they're not uh, pedants. They're not wedded to these kind of fantasies. Uh, utopia is obviously a nice idea, but they're more interested in getting autonomous control for communities and sovereignty for the poor in those areas and those things in the words of people like marcos those can be negotiated there's ways in the short term of getting what they want without killing people or being killed they were able to say okay well, this isn't winnable let's see what we can get in here and now and that's some for example we did an episode on the tamil tigers they were unable to do that they they in i think it's 2005 basically the negotiations with them ended and they were wiped out a couple of years later they could have got something, maybe. They could have got something uh, if they'd been able to roll with the punches more, but they didn't. Yeah, I, that's a great place to end it, I think. So um, thanks for listening to the Anime Podcast. I have been James, and the co-host today, as always, is Alex. We would like to hear your thoughts on the season altogether, and specifically, I would be interested to hear if people do have a specific, maybe not, you know, parcel opinions, but you know, if there is actually things about the Zapatistas that are maybe we didn't get it quite right, or there's very specific issues that they might have, because this is as good as it gets this season, I think, in terms of you know who we give glowing reviews to. Also, uh, if anyone is listening who is a part or affiliated in any way to the EZLN or any affiliate groups, feel free to contact us. We'd love to talk to you. Yeah, that's us. So good night, folks, and enjoy your week, no matter what you decide to do with it. But probably um, aim for a revolution. Loud fart noise. Fart shows!